Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Uh, welcome to the LSE and uh, the Old Theatre. It's great to see um, this, uh, this fine theatre full once again. Uh, my name is uh, Tim Frost. Uh, I'm an alum and a governor uh, of the LSE. Uh, and when I'm not doing that, I moonlight as a director of the Bank of England, the central bank here in the UK. But tonight, I'm particularly honoured to chair our public debate, Will the 21st Century Be Asian? I hope you've all brought your crystal balls so we can see into the future together. In fact, for, for, this is going to be recorded so people won't see the gesture. But if I, if I do that, it means I'm polishing my crystal ball. So now you know it's best to be in the lecture rather than listening to it, uh, listening to it online. Uh, this event is brought to you uh, by the close collaboration of two of the school's most dynamic centres, LSE Ideas and the LSE uh, Southeast Asia Centre. So to help us see into the future, um, we have, uh, starting from my extreme left, I don't know if that's appropriate or not, um, <laughs> your, your extreme right... Professor Danny Kwa, director of the LSE's Saw Sui Hock Southeast Asian Centre. Uh, next to him, uh, we have Associate Professor Leslie Vinajamuri. <laughs> Leslie, how did I do? <laughs> Vinjamuri. Vinjamuri. There we are, my, my, my Co-director co of um, SOAS's Centre for the International Politics of Conflict, Rights and Justice. Uh, so, LS, uh, so uh, Leslie is not currently of this parish, but I'm pleased to tell you that she has both studied and taught here. So, Leslie, a warm welcome back for you. I understand you've, you've spoken in the old theatre many times before, so that's fantastic. And then closest to me, um, and again, I'm not sure if that's entirely appropriate, uh, Professor Michael Cox, <laughs> Director of LSE Ideas, um, described as the LSE's foreign policy think tank. Uh, I hope you three in particular have polished your crystal balls. Uh, they, are, they and you are participating in one of the UK's most popular and successful university public events uh, programme. Um, part of what makes our events programme successful is good housekeeping. So bear with me for just a couple of minutes with uh, some, uh, some uh, important announcements. Tomorrow night, uh, LSE Ideas and, and the Dorendorf uh, Forum and the International Relations Department uh, are um, holding a, a, a lecture starting at 6.30 on Russian foreign policy as an exercise in nation building. And again, uh, Professor Cox, so you don't give him too much of a hard ride tonight, will be speaking there. Uh, and then a little further in the future, Thursday the 19th of November... Uh, I'll certainly be coming to this one. Red flag over Horton Street, the radical tradition at the LSE, myth, reality, and fact. And that's part of the uh, Ralph Miliband program, Progress and Its Discontents. Um, heartily, recommend, uh, heartily recommend that one. Um, back to this evening. Uh, for us tweeters, the hashtag for tonight's event, hopefully on the screen, is, yes, it's there, is LSE... Asia, but whether you're choosing to tweet or not, uh, please put your phones on silent. If all goes to plan, as I, re as I mentioned earlier, we'll be recording uh, the event, so it will be online. 
Uh, each of your doyens is going to speak for 15 minutes, and there'll be plenty of time for questions uh, afterwards. Uh, last week, we had Ben Bernanke here, the former chairman of the Federal uh, Reserve System, and the audience were asked to submit their questions in a very 19th century way with, with slips of paper, <laughs> which was not entirely satisfactory. So tonight, as we move forward, we're going to have the 20th century approach. You'll put your hands up, yeah. we'll bring you a microphone, oh. and you can ask the question. <laughs> this is progress. We're also going to try the 21st century approach. I will keep an eye on the Twitter feed, and if I see some particularly good, interesting, and insightful questions, I, I will call on you when, it get, uh, when we get to questions and ask you to identify yourself, if you so choose, and ask your questions that way. I've taken long enough. Uh, so uh, I, think our, I think we agreed our running order would be... Um, what did we agree our running order would be? Me first. Mick first, Leslie, Leslie second, Danny third. Yeah. Mick, you're on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, th thanks, Tim. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, the Asian century, is it coming? Is it here? Uh, is it possible? Is it feasible? Uh, the idea, and I mentioned the notion of an idea of an Asian century is uh, not a new one. Uh, however, the possibility uh, of an Asian century, meaning here a world in which Asia becomes the most important region uh, and therefore the most important player in the world, is new. It's based on six facts. I thought I'd start with some facts uh, I know some people don't think facts exist, but I thought facts might be useful in this, in this discussion. Fact one, it's based on economic growth, especially robust uh, since the disastrous uh, Asian economic crisis of 1997, now much forgotten, but since then, Asia recovered rapidly and over the last near 20 years has experienced overall of pretty rapid growth. Fact two, uh, economic weight. Uh, Asia's overall weight in the world economy, and I know Danny will say something about this, has grown enormously over the last uh, 15 or 20 years. Fact three, economic size of at least uh, three uh, definably uh, Asian states, uh, and not just China. China, India, and Japan taken together. And if you look at the, the statistics for 2015, whether you want to take them from the IMF, the World Bank, or that well-known neutral organization called the CIA, doesn't really matter. You can take them from whichever one you like, and they all come up with basically the same story, maybe a slightly different order of running. They come up, there's top five economies of the world, and three of those happened to be one China, two India, Japan, sometimes Japan goes forward, India goes back. But in the top five state economic power, three of the top fives are, are Asian states. And this doesn't take into account Singapore, it doesn't take into account Taiwan, uh, and it doesn't take into account South Korea, all highly successful economies in their own right. So, growth, weight, size, fact four, demographics. Numbers of people matter. 
size of population is crucial. We're now told that Britain in the next 15 or 20 years is going to have 80 million people and the implication is uh, that this somehow or another will make Britain, uh, in pure demographics, uh, the biggest, possibly the most populous country in this part of Europe. Well, Britain's one thing, Europe's another, but Asia is something else altogether. So if we take these demographic facts simply today, Asian countries taken in the round uh, account for some 4 billion people, which is about 60% of the world's population. And that, that, that is seriously significant. Now, of course, all those people could be poor. So if one blunts about it, if they're poor, they therefore matter less. But, and this then brings me on to fact five, which in this sense is social change. Because of the growing weight, the growth, and the increasing modernization of Asia over the last 25 or more years, there's been a massive social change within this large population. So people are no longer as poor as they once were, though many still remain so. In fact, over the last 10 years, 20 years or so, tens of millions of people within Asia, not just China, but within Asia as a whole, but China particularly, have been taken out of poverty, and millions increasingly have joined that well-defined class, which is no longer the working class or the proletariat, as they would have said once at the LSE. It's the middle class, the class you want to belong to. So there's been massive social change as well, on top of the huge demographic potential advantages which demography confers on states. It doesn't always, but in this case it seems to. And then finally, fact six is what I might call the global impact of Asia going out. It's not just where it is itself, what weight it has there, where it sits. As we know, if regions or states are going to have impact, the question is not just staying at home, it is going out. This is what, in a sense, made the West powerful. Britain was not powerful because it was Britain with its wretched weather and horrible food. <laughs> Britain became powerful by virtue of going out, became an empire, and that's why Britain was significant. Sorry if I offended anybody who loves the British Empire, but, <laughs> but then I'm 60% Irish. <laughs> Genetically speaking. Well, fact six is the global impact of Asia. Now, South Korea and, of course, Japan were already well-established international economic actors by the 1980s. I know I bought a a Japanese car, and it was really good. <laughs> but it's now India and China who are now expanding their range of economic operations. So too, by the way, is Malaysia. If you look at Battersea Power Station, you'll wonder why it's being transformed so rapidly. Well, that is a very large Malaysian uh, investment of money. Property markets in London, New York, and Vancouver have been buoyed up by money from abroad, uh, Asian money, of course, has been some part of this, to say the least. Tourist numbers, massive source of impact in the world, for good or bad. Uh, but tourist numbers are rising from Asia. And so, too, as you must know if you're here at the LSE, are student numbers. Now, LSE has always been said, and I was going to say more about the LSE in Asia, because it is an interesting story, by the way the whole relationship between Asia and the LSE, and it goes back a very long way. 
In fact, one of the first found foundational amounts of money given to, this, uh, to this, uh, this institution was given by the Tata Foundation back in 1911 and 1912. Some of the great anthropologists who were trained uh, here came from China. So there's a, there's a long, long established relationship, and I don't want to go on to talk about the role of LSE and Indian independence in the 1950s. There's a huge relationship then with Singapore and with Malaysia. But if you look around LSE today, in a sense, the, the tradition continues of that very powerful and close and good relationship between the LSE and Asia. The LSE, as we all know, is not only the best university in this country and possibly the whole world, if not the universe. Uh, the LSE is also more global than uh, any other university. But it also reflects what is happening elsewhere. We have approximately 10,000 full-time students at the moment, undergraduates, masters and PhDs and several others uh, of unknown provenance. <laughs> um, well, 3,000, 3,000 approximately of these students uh, come from Asia in one form or another, whether from the PRC, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, etc., etc., etc. So this is a reflection of Asia going global. You know, and this is about impact, and this, is about, and this was not so much, the, even in the old days when uh, this university welcomed students from all over the world, they were small in number relative to the size of the institution. Now they are together, many of you out there as well, uh, form a significant part of what this institution is. So taking all those facts together, it's pretty obvious why people are thinking of an Asian century, or at least Asia becoming more significant and even more significant. This notion of an Asian century is also based upon not just facts, because facts alone don't tell the whole story, it's also based on perceptions, and the perceptions of others who are not Asian. Uh, for instance, back in November 2001, Goldman Sachs and its chief economist then, Jim O'Neill, and that's going back nearly 14 years, identified four big growth economies, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And that was quite a revolutionary, radical thing to do back in November 2001, and two of those, of course, are Asian economies. So the perception was, and that had a huge impact on people's perception of Asia, simply the identification of the BRICS, and two of the BRICS, of course, being Asian economies. Ten years later, of course, the United States caught up with reality too, perhaps. The U.S. policy switched to Asia, the so-called tilt to Asia, which was, in a sense, a recognition of something that many people have been talking about for a long time, which was that the future opportunities for the United States are still the leading power in the world, and challenges, particularly the China challenge, as many Americans see it, they were now in Asia, and they were less so in Europe. Now, the Europeans, of course, got very iffy about this and didn't like being kind of downgraded uh, into kind of business class as opposed to first class, but then they'd have to live with that reality. That was the U.S. policy switch. Now, we'll talk about what that really means. And then, of course, if we're looking at perceptions of others, well, I don't know what your perceptions were, but two few days ago when the Chinese president was here, I thought that was quite a welcome to stay two or three nights in the royal palace, to which I've never been invited. <laughs> and I think that was a perception. I mean, that is a perception. You know, China is not just, you know, a place out there, it is a place here. And to confer the, the, the status which was conferred on the Chinese president, quite rightly so, tells us quite a lot. And all this, by the way, and I should add to this, a kind of contrast between a kind of perception of a rising Asia, 
becoming more and more significant and important, and not just China, but China particularly, and a notion of a kind of moribund West. That's the kind of contrast that people then draw. You know, the US kind of limps along, okay, it's doing pretty well, but it ain't doing as well as it once did, and as for the European Union, most of the prognoses and predictions about that veer between the catastrophic and the seriously miserable. <laughs> and third and finally, uh, it's based, this perception, on an understanding of the past and, to come back to Tim's quick point, on the prediction about the future. Indeed, there are many historians of the region, indeed of world history, and I wouldn't call myself one of them because I don't, don't know enough, but there is a perception amongst world historians that in fact the biggest economies in the world before the 18th century were Asian economies, the biggest at least, namely India and China. Then along comes the great divergence where the West takes off, you know, the Industrial Revolution and all that, that gives the West a two-century period of advantage. And now what is happening, it isn't that Asia is rising, Asia is returning. Not just rising, but returning. And this is certainly, I think, a view put forward, particularly by somebody like Kishori Mababani down in Singapore. He said, it isn't that Asia's rising, it's, not, it's more than that, it's actually returning to the place that it once held. And Kishori Mababani being very very interesting and provocative young man or older man, says, well, this is the natural order of things sometimes as well. So it's also based uh, not just on the past but also on the future. Goldman Sachs tells us that China, uh, even now, but even into the future, will be the biggest economy in the world by a massive margin by 2050. Then the US will be 40 billion, uh, trillion rather, and China will be 70. And Asia itself, according to the Asia Development Bank, will grow by... 40% to world GDP by 2030. And by the middle of the, this century, this is the prediction, Tim, it will be half world GDP. So those are all the obvious economic facts, quickly. Now, the conclusions to be drawn from that, it seems to me pretty self-evident, that if all those facts are true, and I don't think any are wrong, <laughs> I hope they're not anyway, um, this constitutes a revolution in international affairs. There's, not, there's, not, there's nothing else we can call it. As significant, uh, says Farid Zakaria, as that which went along with America's rise to power after World War II. And few writers out there seem to dispute this, I think. I mean, some qualify this, some add additional facts. But few seem to dispute it. We are in the midst of a massive transition, says John Eikenberry, a noted Princeton IR school. Well, there's no doubt about it. That's right, says Paul Kennedy. He says, but what Paul Kennedy adds to the discussion is it isn't just that Asia's rising, we're on the way down. So it's not just a question of Asia going up. Relatively speaking, if they're going up, well, you know, if you follow football, you know what goes. If they go up, you go down. Um, so it's not just a benign outcome for the West. It's one of decline, not just rise. And it's not just regions which are rising. Of course, it's China's rise, too, which is part of this very big story. And, and, and the argument you hear put forward now about China is essentially one, well, you can't contain it. The horse is out of the stable, quite literally. Make your deal now with the new kid on the block or else. Now, normally at this stage, uh, I do what any good social scientist brought up in an institution where Karl Popper taught for over 25 years. Namely, I now try and prove the opposite. Or more precisely, try and show how this picture can be falsified. <laughs> And there are many facts one can draw upon to show why this picture of rude Asian health and declining West does not tell us everything. 
Uh, most obviously, if the West is in decline, then frankly, why do so many students from Asia want to come and study in the West? After all, if the LSE is on the way down with the UK economy, then why are so many people from Asia, students from Asia, coming to study? It's, a, it's an interesting indicator of decline. Everybody wants to come and study here. If the United States is on the slide, as a, a number of commentators have argued, then why does it have so many allies? Why do so many people want to be its friends? After all, if you're not very popular and you're on the way down, most people want to avoid you. In the United States case, everybody wants to join it in terms of alliances. And why does it still retain so much global firepower? It's still about half the world's uh, military expenditures even today. And if the U.S. is bankrupt or on the way down, can't do very much from Syria to, to the South China Seas to, to Ukraine, why do we all want to hold the U.S. dollar, which still remains the dominant currency of the world today in terms of international reserves? And if the EU is finished, as, uh, well, many people seem to argue, uh, why are people dying, quite literally, to get into it? And, and maybe the West still has what Asia lacks, good governance. So there's many ways we could dis, dis, set of sets, put one set of facts and then set them along another side and another set of facts. And Danny and I have discussed this in the past, have done this back and forth like a couple of kind of old tennis players who don't know how to finish the game, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, but I, I think all of what I'm saying is true. I mean, this is, in a sense, the interesting and complex issue here, really. The both sets of facts seems to be are true. But maybe I want to pose a rather different set of questions and problems, and then I'll sit down, Tim, because you're looking at your watch. <laughs> it's always a good sign. Um, the first, really, is a question about the deeper sources of this transition or power shift to the East. It's meaning, if you like. Is this really about the rise of something we now call the East? In the old days, of course, the East was communism. Now it's Asia. <laughs> Come back to the old days, if you like. Is this really about the rise of the East or really about the success of the West? And it seems to me that we've got to have a kind of a complicated way of thinking about this. Or both. India and China have become what they have become and we are talking about them in the way we now talk about them, as rising, successful economic powers, precisely because they abandoned certain kinds of failed economic models and adopted, in whatever qualified way, another economic model. Now, I'm not saying that economic model was either Keynesian or Hayekian or whatever, but it meant the market, however you want to define what kind of market, what variety of capitalism, they joined a system they had either been resisting or opposing or trying to define themselves against for the better part of what we used to call the Cold War. And the end of the Cold War, in some senses, wasn't just a defeat for the Soviet Union. It wasn't just what happens in East Central Europe geostrategically. It what happens economically. And what are the consequences of that which flow from that? And one of the things that flows from many of the things that flow from that 
are that many countries in Asia which, which, which operated under different sets of economic principles in a hostile relationship to the world market change those principles and have to rejoin the world market. So it isn't to say there are no indigenous reasons within Asia for this success. There's a huge literature out there why this is true, from Asian values over to developmental state stuff. But it does seem to me that one's got to pose the question, not about the rise of the East, but also the success of the West. Um, and one should also point out that South Korea and Taiwan have lived and will continue to live for the foreseeable future under a U.S. military umbrella, which rather gives the U.S. a rather significant role in this as well. And Japan today, as much as it did back when its constitution was written in the early 50s, never says no to Washington. So this is still the reality. The second concern is the contradictions within Asia itself, and I want to say less about that and leave that to the other speakers. And the Asia Development Bank itself recognized many in its going to 2050 report. And there are many things, in other words, and this gets back onto the problems of prediction, which Tim hinted at at the beginning. There are many things, in other words, that could change the positive trajectory in Asia. I mean, look how optimistic people were about the Western economies back in 2005, 6, and 7, before the whole thing started to come falling down rather badly. So there are many things out there which the Asia Development Bank also recognized. There are many others, too, which it doesn't. One which it does not mention is the increased fears of the power shifts. Power shifts creates uncertainties. Power shifts creates fears. And there's no question that within the Asia region, the power shift which seems to be advantaging China is creating certain kinds of fears, however you want to interpret them. Whoever causes all this, who is to blame? I don't care. But the truth of the matter is it's creating those kinds of fears. And moreover, this is fears being created in a region which doesn't have adequate regional governance structures still. It seems to me that there's an absence of a regional governance structure. And the third and final point, and I now sit down, it seems to me that in the end we're debating this, we've kind of got to debate this as citizens of the whole world and not citizens of either one country or citizens of one region. It isn't a question of Europe versus Asia or the West versus the East or anything else like that. It could turn into that. It could turn into that. We could, in a sense, be the authors if we use the wrong words and the wrong language. It could turn into that. But how this process of shifts is managed is crucial. Nothing is inevitable. Nothing is overdetermined. We, are, we do not live in a world where the mach it's a machine-like inevitable outcome of power shifts. Because in the past, when there have been power shifts, let's be perfectly honest, more conflict has tended to follow. As a general rule, as a general rule. It doesn't happen everywhere. It doesn't happen at all times and all places. There are many countervailing factors today operating in the world economy. I know that. But still, there are some real worries and dangers out there. So it seems to me the third point I'd make by way of general conclusion then, Tim, is how we all together view these shifts, work together to ensure they have a benign outcome. In other words, perhaps for once, we might draw the correct lessons of history and not the wrong ones. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Mick. Leslie. Thank you. Um, I should start by saying thank you very much. I think I should say thank you to Mick for inviting me, to Danny for sharing this panel with me. It's an honor. Uh, but, of course, political scientists, my field is international relations, were terribly uncomfortable with predictions. So maybe I shouldn't really thank you, Mick, but it's, it's great to be here nonetheless. 
Um, I was puzzled as I sat and pondered this question over the last uh, few months and was sort of looking at what various people will say, because, of course, it's not clear what we, we, what we say when we pose the question, will the 20th century be an Asian century? Um, so let me start by saying yes and no, and I'll begin with the yes. And I think it's crucial, yeah, I think it's very crucial to differentiate between whether or not Asia will be the focus of the 21st century and whether or not Asia will be the leader in that century. And so I'll start with yes, and I do think that Asia will be the focus of the 21st century. Let me say a little bit about why. Um, the durability and quality of a global order will depend very much on the U.S.-China relationship, and more specifically, the sanctity of a rules-based international system of global governance in the 21st century is going to depend very much on the renegotiation of terms in the existing international institutions and also on cooperation in new institutions, both at the global and regional level. The U.S. and China are giants in the system. They're not equals, but they are both giants. And their participation or defection will continue to matter more than any other single nation. The U.S. role, I think, will be especially important to this. Um, the ability of these major powers to create a system that is attractive to their regional partners and other players in the region, not necessarily partners in the case of Asia, is absolutely crucial. Why? Because leaders need followers. And finally, the ability of the United States to work collectively with Europe will be absolutely crucial. And I thought Mick would say more about this, but actually you didn't this time. Um, the ability of the United States to work collectively with Europe will be crucial in securing the character of this order. Why? Because a balance of liberal values will be very difficult to maintain in the absence of a robust transatlantic partnership. Um, and I would suggest that avoiding divisions between the U.S. and Europe and also within Europe will not be easy given competitive pressures to secure a robust economic relationship with China that each of these individual states will face. So what's at stake? The failure to manage power in the Asian region and to negotiate new terms for global governance risks a descent into competitive regional orders, and it's going to take, in my view, a lot of work to preserve an international order in which regional arrangements bolster rather than undermine international cooperation. Um, the recent signs are not fantastic. The failure of the United States to join the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, I think, was very short-sighted. The decision um, currently to push through with a trans-Pacific partnership, although that's in many ways, I think, a very good deal, although we don't really know as much about it as we would like to yet. Um, but th to push forward that partnership in a way that ex excludes China, I think, is deeply problematic because... Each of these moves will serve to alienate rather than integrate China. Um, in the case of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, there's also the added problem, which is that it's creating some problems, I think, in the transatlantic relationship. So secondly, so Asia as a, as a focus of the 21st century, absolutely. Um, Asia as a leader, here, um, I'm, I'm much more skeptical of, uh, of the question. I come down on the side of no. Uh, China, why China is unlikely to replace the United States as a global hegemon, and Asia is unlikely to replace the transatlantic region as a sort of region of leadership. Why are the prospects for Chinese hegemony poor? 
Um, and I'm, I'm sure Danny's, I wanted to go after Danny so I could counter or not, not piggyback on his data, which I know will be extraordinary. Um, but China's own power, I'm persuaded, I'm not an expert on China, but I'm very much persuaded by those who point to it's the shaky platform of its economic um, power, domestic inefficiencies in the state-owned enterprise sector, high levels of inequality. This is not unique to China, of course, very much the case in the United States. High levels of corruption and aging population. The recent change on the one-child policy isn't going to change at any time soon. A slowdown in internal migration. Several factors that have been absolutely crucial to the Chinese model, I think, are very much uncertain and, and at risk now. Secondly, even if the future of, of China's economy was secure, this would simply not be enough. Why? Because economic power is a necessary but insufficient factor for global leadership. Confidence, trust, legitimacy, and soft power matter. And these are sorely lacking, I would argue, when it comes to Chinese leadership globally. Um, legitimacy matters now more than it ever has mattered before. Why? Because there's been an accumulation of expectations over the last five or six decades. During the course of the second half of the 20th century, there's been an accumulation of an expectation that global leadership will be rules-based, it will be values-based, and that when it falls short on either of these dimensions, which it frequently does, that it will be subject to robust challenge internally and externally. And I don't think that China's in a good place to, in a good position to replace the U.S. on this dimension. China's existing mechanisms for o overcoming what I would suggest is a trust deficit, such as high levels of international spending help, but they cannot resolve the problem. And just to give you one example, there was a study recently released, or at least I saw it recently, by a group called Aid Data that looked at the period 2001 to 2013 and surveyed officials from 126 low- and middle-income countries that received foreign aid from a large number of bilateral multilateral donors. Um, and they looked to see how these, these officials ranked these donors with respect to the usefulness of their policy advice, their agenda-setting influence, and their helpfulness during reform implementation. China ranked extremely low. China, the China Export-Import Bank ranked 59th. Chinese embassies finished 70th. And the Chinese Development Bank ranked 75th out of 86th. I'm treading on thin water giving any data sitting next to Danny Kwa. However, this is in a context, just, just to give you some perspective, where China spent 95 billion U.S. dollars on aid and official financing in Africa alone. So money's not enough. You need a little bit more than money. Something's not quite right. A second mechanism, in addition to international spending for overcoming a trust deficit, is to build robust regional partnerships, something that the United States heavily invested in together with its European partners throughout the course of the Cold War. But the, but the potential for these in Asia is deeply challenged by political divisions in the region. So what about Asia? Could Asia as a whole regionally replace the transatlantic religion as a leader in global governance? Here again, I'm deeply skeptical. Um, and Mick alluded to this in his comments. First, the region has many threats that you're very well aware, aware of that serve to fracture rather than unite it. There are multiple unresolved conflicts and historical grievances between China and Japan, between Japan and South Korea. There are disputed territorial claims in the South China Seas, and of course, highly, there's a highly unstable situation on the Korean Peninsula that is unlikely to survive the 21st century. 
Secondly, and I think this is very important, the absence of a common social purpose also inhibits collective initiatives. Compare this to Europe, where a shared social purpose domestically served as a basis for shared values in international institutions in the early decades of the Cold War. For those of you who have studied international relations, John Ruggie referred to this as the compromise of embedded liberalism, which was premised on a domestic bargain in Europe and in the United States and was used to construct a set of international institutions that reflected that domestic compromise. Um, thirdly, diverse domestic political systems, which serve as yet another barrier in establishing trust and confidence within the region of Asia. Um, and, and fourthly, little, there's very little sustained experience. We know this of regional cooperation except in pockets. Of course, ASEAN is a significant pocket. But at, at the level of, of a region, this is just not the case. So what are the likely implications? The Asia will remain divided politically. It will remain mired in ongoing conflict management at a regional level throughout most of the 21st century. And this division will mean that the United States will maintain a very significant ongoing role in the region to preserve security and stability. But, of course, the downside to this is that by the U.S., the presence of the United States serves to keep the region divided. So it's, it's a double-edged sword, but I think that's where we are likely to remain. Ultimately, this lack of unity will, I think, inhibit the, the region's capacity to lead um, and to form the kind of partnerships that really are crucial. And one could compare this to the United States and Europe. I'm going to sort of skip over this, but there, there, on pretty much all of these dimensions, Europe looked very, very diff different in, during the Cold War period. So the Asian century, to the extent that there is an Asian century in the 21st century, will not be so much about replacing American, America's global power with Chinese hegemony or Asian hegemony, but will, it will be much more about effective brokerage. And the key question on the table really is, as I mentioned at the start, is whether or not the United States and China can work together with other regional powers in Europe and in Asia to broker new terms that extend the existing system for global governance. Now, here I think there's a lot of room, unfortunately, for skepticism. And why is that? Efforts to broker global governance arrangements are going to continue to take place in a context where there are multiple sources of constraint and instability even beyond those in Asia. First and foremost, the United States is fundamentally distracted and is finding and will continue to find it very difficult to maintain a strategic focus on Asia. Um, America's negotiation and management of Chinese power will take place in the shadow of America that's deeply preoccupied and distracted by conflict in the Middle East and tensions with Russia. Domestically, the United States is very much weighed down by internal political dysfunction in Washington, very real social problems, high levels of inequality, racial tensions. The list is very, very long. And the future of, you know, we, don't, we have no idea what will happen in the elections, but certainly if, if Hillary Clinton becomes the Democratic choice and becomes president, I don't think that Washington is going to work any better than it, than it currently does. Um, not because I'm not a supporter. I actually will, will reveal my cards. I am, but I don't think that Congress is. Um, it's, it, it is, though, a country that is doing pretty well economically, and so it's not going to settle easily in negotiating its relationship with China. 
it's going to play the card quite hard. So absent active renegotiation, another point, absent an active renegotiation of the existing discourse in Washington, American officials, whether they like it or not, are going to be constrained by the current domestic narrative, which depicts China as an aggressive power that must be contained. The most recent report that came out by the Council on Foreign Relations um, uh, suggested a strategy of containment light rather than a narrative that focuses on China as a power with legitimate interests in its region. I think that's a very difficult argument to make in the context of the United States politically right now. And in this context, there's a, there's a real prospect for a domestic backlash, I think, against an American leader that attempts to give too much and isn't tough enough with China. The argument that China should be given a fair shot simply does not get much play. Um, let me say a couple of words about Europe and, and, then, and then draw this to a close. So Europe faces, of course, as we know, grave crises in its own regions. This is all too familiar to all of you. Refugees, Russia, the Eurozone crisis, its politics are increasingly parochial. I want to see the statistics that the LSE is the most global university oh, in the I, UK. I, I work at SOAS. I just don't buy no it. No doubt about that. Um, one upshot of this, oh, though, <laughs> and here I think Europe and the United States differ, is that I think Europe is going to be much more willing to make, and this I think we saw with, with uh, the visit um, last week, uh, or the week was it the week before? The upshot of this is that Europe is going to be much more willing to make more concessions politically than the United States to secure strong economic links with China. The renegotiation of global governance institutions is going to really threaten and challenge the coherence and relevance of the transatlantic relationship if it's not managed carefully. And I do think there's an extraordinarily high level of investment in managing it carefully, but it's going to be very, very rocky. The competition for China's investments will drive a wedge between European partners and between the Europe and the United States if, um, if, if there's not a lot of effort to make sure that that doesn't happen. This is, of course, counterbalanced by the reality that Russia's current politics... Um, and conflict in the Middle East exert the opposite kind of pressure on the U.S. and Europe, which is to partner and work together. So in conclusion, American leadership during the Cold War rested not only, as we know, on military and economic foundations, but it rested fundamentally on a vision of how to organize social and political life, which was for the most part shared with its European partners and reflected in the domestic societies and then embedded in international institutions And the future will require China and the United States to renegotiate the terms of international order within and beyond existing institutions. But in the absence of this kind of shared social purpose, it simply doesn't exist between these two very powerful countries. It will, though, take place in the presence of heightened expectations that global governance should and must inspire trust and be open to contestation. Um, And finally, uh, this negotiation really, I do think, needs to safeguard and leverage the transatlantic relationship, most especially because this will be essential in defining the balance of values that underpins global governance in the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie. Danny, you're on. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Tim. 
my fellow panelists and um, the audience for this um, opportunity to get to exchange ideas on what Mick and, and Leslie have pointed out is, is really the defining question of this coming century of our time. It's not clear, it would not be immediately clear to many who study economics, bizarrely, why it should be this. Because from an economics perspective, when we think about how the world is changing, and this is exactly a question about how the world is changing, well, we have a very simple view about how the world changes. We think we take investment, we take the capital stock, we mix it with labor in a way that, say, Bill Easterly describes in his wonderful books. Out of that comes the things that we produce. Some of us are better at producing things than others, and then that's how the world evolves. The notion of a century being called Asian or American, the notion of there being a challenge in terms of global leadership is not something that economists and other social scientists outside political science and international relations immediately latch onto. I want to try and argue that that perception is incorrect and that it is crucially important that all the other social scientists, all the other social sciences engage on exactly this issue. One immediate challenge that will come to many people's minds is something that out there in the world people talk about in terms of an increasing likelihood of global conflict that as China or Asia rise, they will come into conflict with the established powers. And history tells us, people like to say, that that's a formula for there being conflict, global conflagration, which is not pleasant. It's one possibility. There are others who say this is not realistic. There's no need for us to think about this kind of an issue. Why does this question matter then? if we sweep aside this offensive realist perspective on the world? Well, I think we need to be clear about the stakes involved in asking this question. And the stakes might not be immediately obvious to many other social sciences. Those of us on the stage who, are, who already think about leadership and political competition, it is clear that is the bread and butter of what we do. But for many others in the world, other people, ordinary people, why should this be something that matters to us? Well, the competition for the naming of the century, the competition for global leadership, is not like other competitions. In economics, we like to think that competition makes everybody better off. If you're a business, you're a firm, you compete with others, even if you don't come out as the very largest firm, you have improved efficiency and productivity, you're providing some a service for society, society becomes better off with competition. The kind of competition that we're talking about here is not that. It is destructive competition. It is a winner-take-all kind of competition. It is, it is a perspective on the world that those who win, that party, that nation-state who wins, who gets to call the century theirs, gets to write the rules of the game. They get to organize the world in such a way that advantages them and potentially disadvantages others, the challenges. It is winner-take-all. It is destructive competition, and those who don't win get nothing. 
Now, of course, in that simplification, you know, that's not literally true. There's negotiation. There's all the other things going on. But it is a winner-take-all competition to see who gets to write the rules of the game. And that is what informs and drives this discussion. And if we miss that, then we miss the critical bit. The other thing that this kind of a competition gives us is that it is zero-sum. One party wins only if some other party loses. China or Asia become number one only if America or the West fall. And that kind of a competition, this zero-sum competition, makes it quite different from what other social sciences are used to. This is, a comp this is a discussion that we need to engage on. Now, the way these discussions typically unfold, who is number one, who gets the bragging rights to have this century theirs, who gets to write the rules of the game? Well, there's some criteria that we usually measure up. And then in that ranking, in that zero-sum game, winner-take-all kind of approach to this political international competition, who gets the highest ranking in this measuring up? gets to be the number one. They get to write the rules of the game. They get to determine outcomes in a way that advantages them. Usually, the way these discussions go, let me just give a very crude version of this, say then why I don't think it's very helpful, but along the way, provide some nuance and, and subtlety. Sometimes, people say, what we need to do is look at the world's largest economy. Who's got the stonking biggest gross domestic product. And then we are then energized by how we think China's GDP is growing in such a way that it's already going to overtake the United States. Okay. But then we might qualify that, say, well, yeah, but that's because China has four times the population of the United States, or Asia has more than half the world's population, so that's not a really fair measurement. We look at gross domestic product per capita. Or we factor in the number of people living in poverty. We work out how many millionaires, billionaires there are in a society. We work out some measure of economic capacity. We rank up countries, and then we give it an index, and then you're on your way to whether you get to be number one. And then you're on a roll. Once you've got this machinery in place, then you start measuring military spending. You look at people's countries' projective power. You look at who's got how many aircraft carriers. What are the production industrial giants in which part of the world? Who's generating the corporate brand names that everybody else in the world recognizes? Who produces the fashion that we wear, the movies that we watch, the cultural icons that inspire and attract? Whose currency is it that gets to be the world's reserve currency, that everybody then trusts. And then as we go through this listing, we begin to build a picture of who it is that's number one. And if there's still ambiguity, we bring in universities. We bring in <laughs> students from what part of the world are going where. We start to rack up <laughs> Nobel Prizes, and who's got national, what, what nationality wins what Nobel Prizes. And we build this landscape, whose century is it going to be? And when you do that, well, depending on who you do that, of course, if you do count up all these things, invariably people say, well, you know, it's still the United States that gets to be number one. And the, clin the clinching point is the final thing. Even after all this is done, the United States or the West has already been established to be 
that part of the world whose century and millennia this is? The question that's asked is, do people want to come to you? Do people want to come to your country? Do people pack their bags and come to you and build a new life because this is what the future is for them? Are they leaving some other part of the world? And it is this conversation, this discussion, this measuring up then, that makes for who gets to be the, 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 who gets the bragging rights of this century. Now, if we play the same game, I suspect that you know, all of us would say, the picture has become more nuanced. This is not the game I want to play, but just to spend a couple of minutes on it. We could look at China's gross domestic product or Asia's gross domestic product. We get into a conversation about whether you measure that at purchasing power parity or market exchange rates. And then if, chi if the China story is insufficient because it's such a large population, then we look at per capita GDP. But then we run into trouble because out there in Asia, Singapore has a larger per capita GDP than, well, practically everywhere else in the West. Today, this morning, Singapore was named as the world's healthiest country in the world. Okay, based on indicators that come from the United Nations, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, with the United States and the United Kingdom coming outside of the top 20. You look at people lift, being lifted out of poverty, you look at, among other things, what's happening to the world's economic center of gravity. Now, in a way that doesn't try and prejudge the situation by looking at BRICS, by looking at countries, you just count up over square kilometers of surface area on this earth, how much value is being produced. You track that over time using a combination of satellite data, some from the CIA, some from Google. Track this over time and you can calculate the center for the world's economic value production and you see that it's steadily tracking east. In the last 30 years, it's moved 5,000 kilometers east. And so that is part of a, a, a narrative that one would then build about how it's no longer the old Western century, it's the Asian century. It's the Asian century in a way that did not prejudge where the world was going, in like a BRICS kind of a priori way, but simply allowed the data to reveal itself. But then what about all these other things? You know, all these other things about soft power, cultural iconography, the technology that makes things work, well, when Alibaba, the company, talking about corporate brand names, when Alibaba, the company, floated in September, October last year, the headlines that came blaring out of a lot of the media that we saw was that this is a company that you've never heard of. It is now bigger than Facebook. But of course, the reality is a lot of people had heard of Alibaba. More than half the world had heard of Alibaba. It did not stop the, the, name, the, the gainsaying about how corporate iconography is still firmly embedded in the West. This is a picture that draws the smallest circle on our planet containing half the world's population. It contains pretty much everyone who's heard of Alibaba. <laughs> so by the time the, the Western press announced that this was such a surprising development. Actually, most of the world had heard of this, and we were all excited that it was IPOing. Okay. And as you look at this fact, you realize that if we continue this narrative,
about measurement, we need to be a lot more careful than we're used to being. Okay. Ranking number 12 and 13 in the World Survey of Top Universities now are two universities, the National University of Singapore and Nanyang Technological University. They come ahead of Yale, Johns Hopkins, Columbia, and Berkeley. Yo-Yo Tu, China's first Nobel Prize winner for science this year, has changed the landscape for the development of science prizes. The first half of the 20th century was indeed dominated by the West in terms of the Nobel Prizes handed out. There are good reasons for that. But Yo-Yo Tu came out of a cultural milieu where for two decades she suffered the Cultural Revolution, where academics was considered one of the nine dark categories. She was not allowed to do science, but despite this, of course, science has begun to show in the East. Okay. Let me not continue this, this listing of facts, and uh, listing of facts and numbers. Do people want to come to your country to make a new life? We certainly don't see that, but we see a changing landscape. We see manifold stories about people, the co-founder co of Facebook, Jim Rogers, others making their way across East. We see surveys like the Pew Foundation Global Attitudes Projects confirming that within China, 80% of the world's population are satisfied with the direction that their government is going. We see reports such as how this year, China has more US dollar billionaires than does the United States. Many of these coming not from inheritance, but from manufacturing and information technology. Now, all of this simply says, if we come down to a debate that recites facts, the landscape is completely different from how it was five, ten years ago. This then gets us to where, as Professor Cox described, we're unable to deal, to, 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 to settle this ongoing debate. Let me conclude by suggesting a way out of this. And the way out of this is for us to stop having a discussion about who's got more power to do this, that, or the other. Who's got the cultural iconography to make for soft power? Let me suggest that the way we want to move the discussion is towards legitimacy, towards asking for a global governance, a leadership of the world that, strangely enough, serves the world. Does not serve the nation whose name gets to be on this century, but serves the world. Now, it seems like this is, this is a tall order to ask. Why should we name the century or design global governance or designate global leadership in such an altruistic way? Actually, it's not. It's actually how the United States came to be the leader of the world that it is that it has been. Many of you know Henry Kissinger, in, as a young academic in 1961, asked President Truman, "What is it about your presidency that will make you most proud?" And Truman, the president of the United States in 1960s, said, "What will make me?" proudest of the United States and of my presidency is that we totally defeated our enemies and then brought them back to the community of nations. Only America could have done this. We need to take pride 
in our humane and democratic values, to be remembered not so much for our victories as for our conciliations. The key words are inclusiveness, cooperation, voluntary accession. And the whole world fell in line with this vision. Lee Kuan Yew, Singapore's founding prime minister, told the United States, America would always be ahead of China because while China might boast a population of 1.3 billion people, America could draw on the talents and goodwill of more than 7 billion. This is rhetoric of the highest water. This is the kind of vision that ought to inform our discussion of whose century it comes to be. This is not rhetoric of the kind that you see Conan the Barbarian articulate, who when he was asked, what is it, Conan, that is best in life? He said in his Austrian accent, <laughs> to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentations of their women. The thing is, are we now at a point where the United States and the West, in its narrative on power and who it is that owns the century, have we gotten to the point where we're saying that the United States or the West remains the most powerful and that is why it continues to run the century and you count power by having the biggest guns or the loudest bombs? Or should power instead be the ability to order the international system by constructing a cooperative system of collaboration, such as one might think China is trying to do with a One Belt, One Road initiative, with an Asian infrastructure investment bank that promises to put in place infrastructure to improve people's lives, to improve, to increase trade by $2.5 trillion across 40 countries, to bring about an improvement in well-being of humanity, as opposed to perhaps an, uh, an interpretation of the American project at this point, the TPP, which is simply, in the words of the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations, a vivid demonstration that the United States is determined to compete on Asia's economic playing ground in the wake of a fear of growing Chinese economic power and geopolitical influence in Asia. I want to suggest that we need to move our discussion of whose century this is to beyond power, but instead to legitimacy, to building trust, and to building collaboration. And at the end of it all, if it's China or Asia that does it better because of a shared Confucian heritage, because of an understanding that this is how we bring hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, because we understand that we don't, we are not perfect, but we know how to do development, well, I say yes, the 21st century will be Asian. Thank you very much.
Danny, thank you. That was marvellous. Um, we have uh, 22 minutes for questions. So please, can I ask you to make your questions brief so we can get as many in as possible? I'm going to try and do uh, groups of three. Um, uh, could you wait for the microphone, please? I'm looking at the top first. A hand at the top, please. Uh, at the front here. Then um, uh, the person in white at the back. And um, the person in uh, maroon. Is that maroon or fuchsia? <laughs> Perhaps fuchsia there. Uh, sir, you're on. Hello, my name's Bill Hayton. I write on Southeast Asia. Uh, my question is mainly addressed to Professor Kwa. I was kind of going with you until you mentioned One Belt, One Road. I wrote on, I write on Southeast Asia. If you ask people in, say, Indonesia about One Belt, One Road, they think looking back on the China-ASEAN free trade area, it hasn't worked for them. Um, all that the Maritime Silk Road promises is uh, Chinese companies bringing Chinese labor to build Chinese products, sorry, Chinese projects um, with minimal benefit for the country. Um, the China-ASEAN Maritime Corporation Fund, $500 million set up two years ago. Not a single yuan has been spent because cooperation isn't working with ASEAN. Ch China isn't making the rules with Southeast Asia. Meanwhile, Indonesia says it's now going to sign up to TPP. I'm skeptical. Okay, thank you. Could you um, identify yourself and an affiliation, please? I should have said that. Yes, uh, my name is Laura Bake. I'm a um, student of I'm a student of international relations as LSE. Um, I was wondering, you made your points very clear about the, the duality or the divide between um, Asia, China in particular, and the US, and that we kind of have this, this, this duality, you could say. And I was wondering what kind of role Europe will play, in your opinion, because um, we didn't, or you didn't mention that at all. Um, you mentioned LSE a lot and that a lot of students are coming here. We are in Europe and especially considering the divide that we can see right now, how was um, President Xi received in, during his visit in, uh, visit in the UK? Um, Chancellor Merkel was just, um, the, the German Chancellor was just in, in China for a state visit and had a quite different approach. So we are very divided within Europe. So it's, it's basically two questions. How should we in Europe create or shape a common China pol uh, policy towards China in order to, to find a yeah, common ground? And also, how would we then integrate that uh, policy, or how should we deal with, with this divide between we've, China and we've the got US? Your question. Thank you very much, Great. Lee. Thanks. Hi, I'm Anjali Mittal, and I'm from India. Uh, my first question is to Dr. Leslie, and uh, you mentioned uh, the US presidential elections and Hillary Clinton coming into power. Uh, it is highly unlikely, but what if Donald Trump comes into power? <laughs> and do you think that will play an important role, especially with the U.S. trade deal and his already comments that he has made towards China? How will that play a role? And also, uh, my next question is directed to Dr. Danny. He mentioned a lot about China. 90% of your talk was related to China, and China is the biggest economy in Asia right now, but India is coming up a lot as well, and China's growth rate has slowed down in the, in the past one year. Do you think 
China and India might become rivals, and that is something the West could take advantage of, and that's why the 21st century will not be completely Asian. Will, will that play a role in that? That's great. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm going to ask all the panellists to answer each question, but I'm going to suggest, arbitrarily using my chairman's powers, mm. that, Danny, do you want to lead on one? Sure. Mick, do you want to lead on two? And regardless, madam, of your preferences, uh, Leslie, will you lead on three and four? Okay. So. Um, thank you for the question about One Belt, One Road. And I agree with you that the history of uh, China's collaborations thus far, certainly in Africa, have not been, been happy ones for a lot of the people on the ground. It's been, you know, it's been uh, almost extractive the way that um, the Chinese businesses have approached this. You know, the way I read One Belt, One Road, um, Silk Road Economic Belt, the Maritime Silk Road, all of these are attempts to try and change that attitude. They're attempts to try and actually make uh, the, the collaboration genuine. And when I think about this, you know, one thing that strikes one is that, one, one thing that strikes me is that, you know, One Belt, One Road, Maritime Silk Road is not going to succeed unless China, in the first time that it engages with Laos, Vietnam, the, the, the first group that it encounters coming out of the mainland ends up being a happy experience all around. That will be viewed as an example further on through India, Mauritius, Sri Lanka, whether China will be able to deliver on a true collaboration. This process, the One Belt, One Road process, the, uh, in fact, the AIB process as well, will be viewed, I think, not just as an end to an economic extraction, but as a means that allows us to learn about whether there's capacity for genuine collaboration. The experience has not been a happy one, but I'm more optimistic going forward. And I agree with you completely. Indonesia is making noises about TPP. It's almost surely not going to sign up in any kind of wholehearted way. ASEAN has not pulled its weight properly as a genuine economic unit. It needs to get its act together as well. Fingers crossed if that can happen, then I think we're more optimistic on One Belt, One Road. Okay. <coughs> I'll speak for Europe. <laughs> Whatever that means. Look, I mean, going back to these boring things called facts, I mean, the European Union countries are the biggest trading partner for China. Uh, Germany is a huge exporter of uh, vehicles to China, and no doubt that will continue, but we'll wait and see. Um, a, lot of, a lot of European investment has gone in. And by the way, China doesn't want just a, a two-power world. I mean, it's been quite clear from the beginning that it doesn't want a Chimerica. It doesn't want a kind of a great power condominium between Washington and Beijing because there's a third major actor within this international order, and that's the European Union. And, and China takes that very, very seriously indeed. Indeed, when the president was in Europe... <laughs> Uh, last year, as opposed to being in Britain this year, which is rather different, I suppose. Um, you know, he made that absolutely clear about Europe's important. And, and the Europeans have been, for years and years and years, developing strategies, policies, open, you know. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on below the radar screen. It, it isn't about aircraft carriers, you know. It isn't about F-111s. You know, it's, it's, not a, it's not about facing off China in the South China Sea. It's the kind of stuff that gets the headlines, you know. It's the boring, everyday economic stuff. 
And that is really deeply significant. And it's about norms and values too. And, you know, the Europeans don't forget that either on a whole range of issues. And here comes the however. <laughs> um, the problem is that uh, there are two things going on. One is what is going on in China, and the other thing is what's going on in Europe. I mean, uh, you know, you may have been reading the newspapers over the last four to five years. Perhaps you don't even read the Daily Mail, which is a very good thing not to read. But um, it will tell you that Europe has been in a bit of trouble, and China's quite well aware of these troubles. And uh, it's well aware, and it's been informed, and I'm sure the president, when he was here, was told, you know, that it is by no means guaranteed that uh, the great British public will vote in a rational way on European membership. Uh, Brexit is not entirely ruled out, and nor is Grexit. It's a smaller issue for Greece, but it's still an important one. So we are still in a process in which uh, we don't know quite what the shape of Europe is going to be. We talk about prediction for Asia. My God. Try doing some prediction for the European Union. This used to be the most solid, boring part of the world <laughs> until about five years ago. And now everything is deeply uncertain. And, you know, China doesn't like uncertainty, first and foremost. And I think this is, this is very concerning as well. So on the one hand, you do have, a, you know, what is still a very deep and profound economic relationship, the, the, the relationship between this country and, uh, and, and Asia generally, China particularly, you know, are pretty good, as we've, we've seen. Genuinely, they are. On the other hand, from a Chinese perspective, there is a, there's a real worry about where Europe is, is going to be. The other thing I'd say, just very, very quickly, without uh, hogging this, is that I, I wish Danny were right. And that, that, I mean, you, you kind of criticize the United States for thinking like, you know, a power, a great power, who thinks number one or nothing. America doesn't do number two. Number two is for losers. <laughs> well, I, I have to be honest with you, Danny. I think America's been too good at teaching everybody else. And I tend to think China thinks a lot like that too. I think it thinks in terms of number one or number two. I mean, I, you know, it is not, you know, this is the logic of great powerdom. It isn't about whether one guy is nicer than the other or their food is better than America's, which is obvious. You know, it is, it, it, it is about great powerdom and how great powers act. And my worry really is that China has been socialized into being the great power. It's learned too well from the United States. So I'm a little less optimistic about, about China, not because I'm an alarmist, because I think it's just acting like all great powers have done in the past. I wants to maximize it, and quite often it thinks it maximizes it at other people's expense. Uh, Leslie, talking of winners and losers, uh, Donald Trump and India. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I know. The, I, I've forgotten the winners and losers. The, the winners and losers was the Trump question. That was my well, set. That oh, was only right, my okay. segment. So, what did Trump win? So Donald Trump, I mean, I, you know, I, I would... I would entertain the question on its own terms, but I really think it's worth saying that instead that Donald Trump is not going to win because I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, very committed Mr. to that principle. No, but, you know, but, but, for, but, but what we – I am not an expert on American domestic politics, but I obviously have looked at this quite a lot. And uh, over many years. And what, you know, the standard line is that you can get through, you know, the, the primaries are very different from the generals. You've got to have a much more centrist candidate to win at the, at the level of the general election. I don't think he's going to get through the primaries. But nonetheless, if he did, well, great, because he's certainly not going to win in the generals. Um, yeah. so, I, so I don't see it as a serious threat in terms of actually this person becoming a president. Um, 
But I do think that it's interesting as a more general phenomenon. What is it about him that resonates? And I, you know, I'm mostly from the East Coast, but I also grew up partly in the Midwest. And I return to the Midwest at least once a year, and, and I engage with a number of people from the Midwest. And so I am very aware, as probably many of you are, that this is, this is not, you know, this, there is a lot that he says that resonates with a lot of Americans. And, and we all know that this comes a lot, a lot of this comes out of a sort of disgruntlement with the New England elite, with Washington's political dysfunction, with inequality, with all sorts of things, right? Middle-class America is not doing very well, relatively speaking, to its historical trajectory. But I don't think Trump is a serious threat. But he is, as an undercurrent, it's, it's a long-term issue. Um, India-China, I think you should yeah, answer the India-China question. Yeah. Yeah. Just on the India-China point, and actually maybe even bring in Japan as well, because that, that matters. Um, I, you know, India figures prominently in my myself thinking about how Asia is going to evolve, among other things, in the earlier question on One Belt, One Road. You know, it will be an attempt to tie together the three largest labor forces in the world, China, India, and ASEAN, actually. And, you know, it attempts to build together in a production chain uh, and build on complementaries, complementarities that Japan will then become part of as well. I mean, to oversimplify dramatically, Japan has been hugely successful at consumer high-tech. China has not yet, but is trying to move up that value chain. And the complementarities are massive across India, ASEAN, China, and Japan. And I think there's a very good story there that one can take forwards. Okay, let's go for three more, please. Uh, downstairs, um, I, I, I can see a, 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 the, right at the back uh, with the glasses. That's one. Um, uh, with the computer on the back row. And um, at the front here with the very fetching beard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, what? Have we got a mic there? Are we ready? You ready? Go for it. And briefly, uh, please, because we only have nine minutes. So, My name is Chelsea. I do MSc Comparative Politics at LSE. And I would like to question Dr. Danny Kwa. Um, you mentioned that one of the independent factors that will determine whether China will succeed with its One Belt, One Road project in Southeast Asia is that the Asian community gets its fact right. But... Ironically, one of the issues that has created disunity within the Asian community in recent years has been China's acts of aggression against several countries within the Asian community. How can you explain that? It's okay. a great question and great tweets through the uh, presentation, Chelsea. Thank you. At the back. Hi, good evening. My name is Wen Kang Chao, and I'm studying economics at LSE. Great um, university. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my question is for Professor Danny Kwa. Uh, so uh, we have seen that uh, China has, in, in, the, in today's world, in many international organizations, has very limited, mar- uh, limited power. For example, in the IMF, where it has uh, really low uh, voting rights compared to uh, the size of its economy. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Do you think that uh, reforms has are going are necessary, and do you think that reforms are going to take place in any time, any recent time? Like, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Joseph from LSA Ideas, and we've been collecting questions on Twitter tonight. So oh, thank you to everyone who's sent some in. Um, I'm going to pick one, 
what conceivable event could unfold to derail Asia's century? So, what conceivable event could unfold to derail Asia's century? So that's the uh, best question from Twitter, but thanks for everyone who sent one in. Panel, I'm looking for volunteers here for... Let me, let me, let me go for that one quick, because I got a one-word answer. Yeah, War. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What yeah. is it good War. for, absolutely? Yeah, no, well, 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 it may not be good for anything, but it, uh, that, and that was part of the implication of what I was getting at. It isn't just that there's a, a, a kind of sense of mutual insecurity between China and the United States. What both China and the United States say about, say about one another is worrying. Their perceptions of each other are problematic because each does think in a rather zero-sum game. Whether you, you are right theoretically, Danny, and I, I, I wish you, were, you, you had more influence inside the, <laughs> the guys who run both countries. You don't. Uh, nor do I. Um, and the truth of the matter is that I, 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 I get an increasing concern myself looking at it from outside. The United States feels it's fundamentally challenged by China and therefore seeks to have containment of China, which I think is ridiculous because China's out of the bottle. It ain't going to be contained. But the very argument that you want to try and contain China makes China feel that America wants to contain it, and China then responds in a light. We're getting a classic security dilemma, and I think that's the real worry and the problem we're in at the moment. So that's one set of issues, and that's one fundamental issue, and that gets back to Danny's point about if that relationship goes wrong, then we're all in deep trouble, and that's, that also includes the transatlantic relationship, given that the transatlantic economy and political system is so dependent on the success of Asia. That's the whole boring stuff called globalization. It's true. But the other worry, of course, is what goes on within inside the Asia region itself, which comes back to what could derail the Asia century. What could derail the Asia century would be the states of Asia themselves. The truth of the matter is there are a series of unresolved historical questions, unresolved historical uh, problems, which go back to World War II, uh, we go back to the Cold War, and go back to how people perceive each other within the region itself. I don't want to kind of say Europe's an ideal place. It's not. It's, unfair. it's an unfair comparison. But the truth about it is, and I travel to Asia a fair amount, particularly to China, but to other places as well, there is not only lack of trust, there is actually, in some cases, active dislike. And, and much of this is very deeply embedded in the culture. It's played domestically, politically in Japan. It's played domestically, politically in Vietnam. It's played domestically, politically in China. Everybody plays the distrust game for domestic reasons, for domestic political and legitimation reasons to go back to Danny. And that worries me. Now, I, I think there are constraints on how far these conflicts can go. And actually, ironically, part of the problem is also part of the solution, because part of the problem is the United States, but part of the solution and the management of these relationships is the United States. Therein is the paradox of Asia. Uh, on the one hand, it does, in a sense, do the divide and rule and keeps Asia's, Asians separate from one another. I accept that. On the other hand, take, take the United States out of Asia, you're in a much worse situation from the point of view of the stability, uh, both economically and strategically, of, of the region. But I, I don't say all lessons of history have to be learned. It's not about the rise of Germany in the 19th century or Japan and Germany in the 20th. History does not necessarily repeat itself. But there are, there are worries there. There are concerns there. And in answer to the questioner, Joseph, in terms of the, that one question, the one thing that could derail all this, quite frankly, would be intensive, intensive conflict 
growing mistrust, which could ultimately lead, even if it's only to a small-scale war, that would have enormous knock-on effects. And by the way, don't forget that before 1914, most people thought that Europe was, was so interlocked economically that it could never go to war with one another. Yep. Ten years before World War I, a man called Norman Angel, wonderful name, who'd, I'd love to be called Angel, uh, I'd love to be an angel too, by the way, and maybe one day I will. But um, Norman Angel wrote a wonderful book in 1910 called The Great Illusion. And what did he say in that? The possibility of wars between the European powers, particularly the British and the Germans. It's very, very unlikely because they trade with one another so much. And I think that's a good argument, but it's not, it's not enough. And, and, and that gets me into this whole question of regional structures, which we simply don't have in it. So that is the worry. That is the worry. Leslie, do you want to have a crack at uh, any you, one of those You can open up. No, I, I, I agree totally with Mix, not, not on the um, specifics, but on the general, that the, the real sort of question mark game changer is conflict within the region. And, and the one that I think that a lot of people think about and I think about is uh, what's going to happen on the Korean Peninsula. But um, I won't go mm, into... Okay. Yeah. Danny, you're going to get the last oh, okay. two minutes. Okay, thank you. I think the war question, the, the war term that Mick introduced, I completely agree with. I think that was, that's a huge disaster looming waiting to happen. Um, I disagreed with Mick about a lot of the things, and with Leslie as well, but a lot of things from earlier, but we'll have to do that later. Um, the, you know, I'm really worried. South China Sea, we've got American warships bristling with guns, sailing up somebody's backyard with a shaky interpretation of what UN Convention law of the sea is, with you know, a totally uh, using language about innocent passage that does not apply to the actual actions that are being taken is hugely dangerous. And then China is building these you know, low-tide elevation islands and putting armaments on them. It's a dangerous situation. That ties to the question about ASEAN. You'll remember that in the mid-1960s, ASEAN came together, as my friend Nazir likes to say, not out of love for each other, but out of fear of China. ASEAN banded together originally as a security coalition, and it's been a huge struggle to get them to think about economic cooperation, which is the question, what do we not do next with China? I think these are all hugely interesting open questions. And that finishes up then with, given that the institutions that we already extend exclude, I think, a lot of the actors that are needed mm -hmm. to resolve these problems, what do we do? The IMF, the World Bank, and others have, you know, have uh, over the last few years shown a great sluggishness in how they are moving to adapt to a shifted global economy. What China is trying to do, which might or might not be a good thing, is trying to build alternative institutions. Off it goes with the AIIB, off it goes with building a coalition around the One Belt, One Road. This fractures global governance, and it makes the, the, the global situation that much more insecure and dangerous, in my view. Thank you, Danny. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, you can decide whether or not the 21st century is going to be a nation century or not. I can assure you that whether it is or not, the 21st century will most definitely be a London School of Economics century. <laughs> and so... Stop, stop, stop. And so on that note, can I ask you to thank the three uh, panellists this evening for their excellent questions? <laughs>